Hi. It was way better the way you did it at the end there. That was great. No, it worked better. Do, you, do we get some Wednesday night people who would agree that that was better? We've been trying to scream that last verse and we couldn't get it to work right, so that's good. Well, it's good to see you guys. I missed you last week. We attended church through live stream at Trinity in Dallas and listened to Dr. Steve Lawson. He's doing most of the teaching there, and we thoroughly enjoyed that. Who else did some of you go last week? Did you guys not do church last week? Oh, you did a whole Harpeth sermon. All right. Sorry about that. Yeah, Scotty and Penny were in Dallas, so they went to the First Baptist and heard Dr. Robert Jeffries. Anybody else who went somewhere special last week for church? Yeah, North Lake Baptist. You went to my dad's church. Oh, y'all, y'all, you were down there. That's right, in Kissimmee, Florida. Anybody else? Oh, that's great. Can't beat that. The rest of you just lost. Adrian Rogers wins. Okay, down in Murfreesboro. Yeah. I have a hard time with that name. I just think about way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. Is that from where you guys are from? Awesome. That's great. So it, it, it's a bummer to have a snow day. I miss the fellowship, but a unique thing to be able to do this right here, right? Especially in the world we live in. How many of you are familiar? We're in Luke 7. Luke 7. Um, sorry, I had to get the technology going there. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be today, and we're going to look at all 54 verses. So if, if you feel like you're being tortured in those chairs, uh, go ahead and stretch now. Or at some point, if you need to stretch, that'll be okay. That's all right. You ever said, uh, you know, had a bite of something, and you said, man, that was good. You ever, you ever say that? Um, we say about God a lot, I think Jimmy K kind of got it going around here. God is good all the time, and yeah, yeah, I like that one. That's pretty good. When I was a kid, we would sing a song, Ain't God Good? You heard that song? And then um, I think it was like a quartet song at some point. Somebody, the Inspirations or one of these guys used to sing that. I always felt like my elementary school language arts teacher was going to show up and get on to me for singing in church, Ain't God Good? Because she would tell us, ain't, ain't a word. All right, some of you got the joke. Some of you are still wondering what I'm talking about here. Well, we're in a section in our study through the Gospel of Luke where for, for many weeks here as we go through this, the information will be new. It'll be new situations. But what is happening will seem like it's repeating. Jesus is going to do a lot of one thing for many, many chapters. What's the one thing he's going to do a lot of? Miracles, healing. It's just, you know, he's going to heal this person. He's going to heal that person. He's going to heal this person. It's a large part of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah who would come. So as we look at those today, I want to address the doctrine that is there. But I also want to keep a theme before our minds as we go through this. And that is the goodness of Jesus. Because if we're not careful, we're only ever concerned with the doctrinal implications of biblical miracles and we forget that we have a God who does miracles just because he loves us. Why does God heal the sick? Because he loves the sick. Why did God answer your prayer about your finances or about this doctrinal thing you were struggling with or about your job or about your spouse or about whatever it is that you were burdened about? We well, did it because he loved you. And he did it because he's good. An attribute of God is that he is good. So I want to talk to you today about God the Son and His goodness that we find in Luke chapter 7. Now let me give you a quick outline to work your way through this. Initially in the first 10 verses, we're going to see the goodness of Jesus to the soldier's servant. We'll read this and you will see that there's a soldier who has a servant who is sick, who sends for Jesus for help, and Jesus heals this soldier's servant. Sick soldier servant. Say that seven times fast. He just, he just showed love and compassion and kindness there. In verse 11 through 17, then, we're going to see Jesus who has compassion on a widow whose son has died. And he brings this man back to life again. So he heals a dead man 
out of his goodness. After this, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus and says, Are you the one? John had spent his whole life preparing the way for the one who would come. So he had to know the one was coming. And then he sees these signs and wonders. Surely he knows this is the one. But John is not in a place of faith at this point. He's in a place of doubt. And we see the goodness of Jesus because he comforts John through his actions and the word that he sends back to him. It's a very loving interaction we see remotely, but through Jesus and John the Baptist. Following that, he shows his goodness to this group of people who have assembled. They're, they're following around. They're trying to hear his teaching. And he, he teaches them some things about their own situation up against the situation of John. And he shows his goodness there. And then finally, as we round out this chapter, he shows his goodness in dealing with this woman. He is invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And a woman with a sinful reputation comes in and pours oil over his head, and is so passionate in her worship that her tears are wetting his feet. She lets her hair down and dries his feet, and this Pharisee is having none of that. And Jesus shows his goodness there. Now in each of these, as we go through them, I want to show you where there's there's a... I'm going to say it this way, but I'm going to clarify. There's a doctrinal twist. Now we don't like doctrinal twists, do we? Because you don't twist doctrine, you... You cut it straight and give it like it is in the Word. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying there. But the people of Jesus' day in religion had gotten so into old covenant doctrine that they forgot about this promised Messiah who would bring in new covenant doctrine. They had gotten so serious about their legalistic works that they had forgotten about the passionate worship that should accompany that. And Jesus in each of these situations Twist it around on them. They're either thinking or they will say to him, uh-uh, you can't do that. And Jesus will do a miracle to correct their accusation against him and their doctrine. So just to illustrate that for you, it would be like you saying to me here this morning, um, you, there's no way you can be loud enough to preach so that the people in the back can hear and I say, well, watch this. And I switch on a microphone with loudspeakers, and all of a sudden the people in the back can hear. Right? And I do something to, to kind of to prove you wrong, but also to do what it is that I intend to do anyway. So that's what we're going to look at here in Luke chapter number 7. All right. Let's pray, and then we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you for time together in your word with the church. We had a snow break last Sunday and did other things. But Lord, it makes us glad to gather back together. Bless this time now as we study your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read the first ten verses. Luke 7, verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, That he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Therefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers, and I say to one, Go, and he goeth. To another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. So we see the goodness of Jesus to this soldier's servant. But initially I want you to place your mind on these first five verses at the haughtiness of religion that we find here. Because it's a, it's a warning signal to you and I as modern organized religion according to the scripture. Now Luke begins in the first two verses with giving us a clue to the heart of this soldier. So Jesus is in Capernaum in verse 1, verse 2, a certain centurion's servant. Now we don't know his name. But we understand him to be someone in particular, and we get his rank and roll in 
life. He's the commander of a centuria, which was about 100 soldiers. Now, don't undermine that. This was the smallest group of soldiers within inside a Roman legion, but it wasn't like they said, we don't trust this guy very well, so we're going to give him a small class. This was like saying, this guy is elite, so we're going to give him this smaller group of elite guys. So a centurion would have been over what we would, like we would say now, special forces. Right? These were Green Berets or Navy SEALs or what's another one? Army Rangers. Pararescue. Only in your world. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding there. Yeah, all of these special forces. These guys formed the backbone of a legion, and they were responsible for enforcing the discipline in the rest of the legion. They received a higher pay. They had a greater share of the spoils than did the common soldiers. So this is this dude. He's elite. He's a man with authority. He expresses that to Jesus. He says, I understand the authority you have because of the authority that I have. But still, we find that this guy, it said of him that he had a servant who was dear to him and was sick and ready to die. This concerned him, so he sent to Jesus for help. Well, he works through the Jewish elders here. Verse 3, he had heard about Jesus, so he sent these elders of the Jews asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. Here we begin to see the pride, the haughtiness, the lack of just being humble. And then that led to the lack of understanding in the religious leaders of this day. They go to Jesus in verse 4, and they begin to make a case for this guy's healing. Now, put yourself in their shoes. You're going to make a case for this guy, Jesus, who's going around, and crowds are beginning to follow him, and it seems that he can do some miraculous things What are you going to say? Well, one thing you're for sure not going to say is, hey, there's this slave over here who's about to die. It would be really nice if you'd come and heal him. It would just be a sweet thing for you to do. That's not how you're going to go at this. Now, that is seemingly how Jesus perceived the centurion going at it and what kind of pricked his interest and his compassion in this regard. But the Jewish leaders of the day, they knew how to be PC. They knew how to go about this thing in an official capacity. They had the language for the situation. So what did they say here? They said, this man loves our nation, and he's built for us a synagogue. What's the logic there? Yeah, this guy deserves this. All right. Now, in the worldly sense, that's very logical. In the biblical sense, we come to learn here, here's this one of these twists of doctrine. That's not how God works. Who is worthy? There are none righteous, Romans 3.10. For all of sin, Romans 3.23. We get over to the book of Revelation, and verse chapter number 5, the question is asked, who is worthy to open the book? There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the haughtiness of religion is... We, we who think we can tell you what to do, Jesus, God the Son, <laughs> who can tell him what to do? Nobody. We think you should come do this because not only did this guy love our nation, but he also built for us a synagogue. Church, let's be careful that's not how we're operating. We're to be operating out of reciprocal goodness as we've received, we're to show. We've received grace, we're to give grace. We've received mercy, we receive mercy. We, we've received holiness. We're to live holy lives. If we're not careful, we only operate as we're motivated by leaders. And we begin to think things like, do they love our nation? And will they let us keep our, our buildings? It's not biblical. It's not heavenly. It's very earthly limited type thinking. So next we see the humility of the requester. The first five verses teach us about the haughtiness of religion. But miracles don't come through the haughtiness of religion. Miracles come through humility. And that's what we find here in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, and he was now not far away from the house. The centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter my roof. So the centurion changes his request. First, he just says to the Jewish elders, can you go get this guy? Then he says, you know what? 
I'm not worth him coming here. Now this is, I think, an understanding of religious ceremony of that day. This man was a Gentile for a Jew, especially a Jewish rabbi, to come under his house would have made him ceremonially, that's a big word, ceremonially unclean. My tongue didn't want to let that word come out there the first time. And so this guy is acknowledging that in further humility and saying, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Now, there's a unique contrast. Had religion said that about this man? The actual religious leaders who would have held Jesus accountable had he gone under that man's roof and would have said, you're not clean to worship now because they were all looking for that aha with Jesus. Claim to be a rabbi and you're acting like you're the Messiah, but we don't, you don't even keep our law very well. They, they said of this Gentile, you should do this. Why? Because he loves our nation and he built a building for us. Prideful. Haughty. Lacking humility. There's nothing wrong with either of those things. There's nothing wrong with loving your nation. There's nothing wrong with building a building. But when those become the standards for holiness, we've truly missed the mark. These guys had. So he contrasts this report from the religious leaders, and then he acknowledges the authority of the word. He says, Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. So he says in verse 6, I am not worthy, you should enter under my roof. Verse 7, wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now, I'm not going to put words in this man's mouth, but in today's world, should somebody feel that about the words of Christ, we would say this is a person who believes in the doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. They are enough. That's exactly what he said there. He said, I believe if you'll just say it, don't come here, don't make yourself unclean, don't associate with me who's unworthy, but just have compassion on my sick servant. I care about him and don't want to see him die. Just say the word and he will be healed. In verse 8, he gives his logic for that kind of thinking. He says, I'm also a man under authority. When I give commands, they do it. And he said, I believe you have that kind of authority there in, in making that point. If you will say this, it will be done. So that leads us to verse 9 and 10, the healing of this servant on their return. In verse 9, we see Jesus marvel. He only marvels twice that we have recorded in any of the gospel accounts. And this is one of those times. He doesn't marvel at the beauty of the structure that they had built as the epitome of old covenant worship. He doesn't marvel at the level of doctrine these old covenant rabbis can grasp, these scribes and these Pharisees and all. He doesn't marvel at any of that. Here we see him marvel at the faith of a Gentile, not even Jewish, soldier as a part of an occupying force. Jesus marvels at his faith. says something about religion of that day. It's a warning to us. We've been New Covenant Christians in organized situations long enough to be compared to them under the Old Covenant and their organization at that point. In fact, we have technology they never dreamed of, so I think we could probably stimulate the timeline there a little bit. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned about and said to the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no not in Israel. Okay, if you're, a, if you're a, one of these Jewish elders at this point, and Jesus just said that to some people, what does that do to you? It's a major insult, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're the leader of faith. You're the one who that guy came to and said, can you get this guy to heal my servant? So you were already kind of getting full of yourself there, thinking, yeah, he knows who to come to for that. These stinking Romans, Gentile dogs. They're not holy like we are. Yeah, we'll get him for you. Don't worry. I know his mama. And man, Jesus just sticks it to him here. In front of these who would come to him and say, you should do this because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. Jesus marvels at this soldier's faith when he says, if you'll just speak the word, it'll happen. And says, I haven't seen such great faith at all around here. 
Now, it's, it's an insult, but it's an insult grounded in fact. And I would say in times like these, these are necessary things to state those facts in love, even if they insult someone. Someone's not doing a good job with something. And you're an authority in that regard. It is insulting for you to say you're not doing a good job with this. But it's counterproductive for you to never state that for them. So that they can learn and do better. Or maybe let someone else do the job they're not doing a good job with. Verse number 10. When they, they who were sent come back, they find the servant healed. says he's been made whole who had been sick. Luke doesn't actually say that Jesus did anything in regards to this person, which is kind of unique. He doesn't say, and Jesus said he will be healed, or Jesus laid hands on him or touched him because he didn't even go to him. It doesn't even say that Jesus heals him here. It just said Jesus marveled at the soldier's faith, and when they got home, the servant had been healed. Now, the goodness of Jesus. In love... He honors the request of a man caring for a sick servant. He heals him and he saves his life. Says he was ready to die early on in this story and now he is healed. So you begin to question, why did Jesus perform this miracle? There's a lot of reasons you can give there. The main reason I want you to know is in love and in goodness, he did this thing for someone. But I think we could point out some things in this text, especially verse 9. He did it because he marveled at this soldier's faith. He said, man, I haven't seen such great faith. And he honored that faith with this proof of that faith. Second, I think it's important for us to note he did it because he was touched by the caring relationship between the servant and his master. Their relationship meant enough for them to seek Jesus' help. And Jesus said, I I understand those types of relationships and I want to do something in this regard. Third, he did it for the sake of these Jewish rulers. They had the gall to come to Jesus with this religious speech, with all of their reasons, and laid it out for him, you should do it this way. And I think Jesus in saying here, they don't even have faith, but here's the centurion who has faith. I think for their own sake of learning and growing, he does it for their sake. This brings us to verse 11, and we see the story of a widow Whose son has died? Let's read from verse 11. And it came to pass the day after that he went into the city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the the beer, which is a coffin, And they that bare him stood still and said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all that they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. So we see the goodness of Jesus. In healing the soldier's servant. Here we see the goodness of Jesus in raising this widow's son from the dead. So we read of a man dead. Dead enough that they're having a funeral. Dead enough that he is in a coffin. And Jesus heals him and brings him back to life. Luke records for us why Jesus raised this man from the dead. So we don't even have to question in the text, well, why did Jesus do it this time? Verse 13, he is clear on why he did it. It says, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, he said unto her, weep not. Boy, if you wonder about how Jesus deals with you, if you ever feel like, does Jesus care? Well, yeah, obviously he cares. It says here, he saw the sadness of this mother, had compassion on her, healed her son because of that. We have a few doctrinal distinctions to make at this point in the text. Now I want you to notice in verse 14 that we have this coffin. And and we say coffin in our world because that's what we understand it to be then. Just whatever they had then that they were doing. Maybe the body was wrapped. Maybe they were toting it in some way. I don't think that's important to understand what's happening here. What I need you to understand is this was a dead body prepared for some sort of burial. 
But we have recorded here that Jesus came and touched the coffin in verse 14. Do you see that? He came and he touched. Does Jesus have to do that to heal based on what else we know from chapter 7? If you just sat down and read Luke 7, you know enough about Jesus and his ability to heal to know that he doesn't have to touch to heal because he didn't do that with the centurion's servant and the centurion's servant was healed. Can he touch through healing? Yes, we know that he can touch through healing. But I think it's important for us to note there's an implication here because in the one sense... He doesn't go and do anything and the man is healed. And in another sense, he comes and he lays hands and the man is raised from the dead. So why did he touch in one and not touch in the other? Here's where we get another one of these doctrinal twists. Was it right for him to touch a dead body? According to old covenant rituals and ceremonies and rites, a dead body was unclean. If you touch a dead body, then you are unclean. So he wasn't supposed to do this here, but he does. It was ceremonially defiling to touch the dead. But if you're raising that accusation against him here, how did Jesus cross that hurdle? He made him alive. Well, hang on now. You can't touch that. Oh, wait, that guy's not dead anymore. He's alive. Isn't that great? Don't you just love Jesus? It's just fantastic to me to think about this. I mean, here these Pharisees say, Jesus, you should heal this guy's servant because he did this and he did this. And And Jesus said, you guys don't even know the faith this guy has. And and leaves it. Maybe they're thinking he's not going to do anything at all. And they get back and and the the servant's healed. And here comes this dead body. You're not supposed to touch that dead body. And Jesus says, oh, well, if that's the case, why not just make him alive again? And now I can touch him all I'd like. Man, I love that. I was that kid growing up that always tried to push the limits with my mother. Mama would set rules, and I would try to do something that she didn't technically say I couldn't do. Right? But I knew I wasn't supposed to, but she didn't actually say I wasn't supposed to. Anybody else in there with me? All right. I'll give you just some clarification here. MacArthur, he says, Jewish tradition held... That a person who entered a Gentile's house was ceremonially defiled. The centurion, undoubtedly familiar with this law, felt unworthy having Jesus suffer such an inconvenience for his sake. So he heals the servant remotely. Same thing with the dead body. He wasn't to touch that. It made him ceremonially unclean. So he made the body alive again. Verse number 16. This miracle happening before these people begins to bring to mind for them old covenant saints. And the stories they know from the past. Notice what they say in verse 16. Fear came upon them all. And they glorified God saying that a great prophet has risen among us. Well they just saw a widow's son being healed from the dead. And they begin to think about a great prophet being risen among them. Thinking back to stories in their past. So who are some people they're probably thinking about here? Specifically prophets of God who brought widow's sons back alive again Elijah Elisha right so they're having these thoughts here now they miss the mark in what they say they say that a great prophet is risen up among us Jesus is more than a great prophet but still we see these miracles of Jesus have their minds headed in the right direction as they say God has visited his people now they misunderstand how God has visited his people at this point because they think of it as God sent us a prophet who could do these miraculous things. What they aren't understanding is this is Emmanuel, the promised one that would be God with his people. But they're on the right track. So that's a wonderful thing. Verse 17 says because of that, the news of this began to spread throughout their region. Now this brings John the Baptist into the mix. Look at verse 18. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus saying, Art thou he that should come or should we look for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist hath sent us unto thee saying, Art thou he that should come or should we look for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, 
the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor is the gospel preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So John's disciples report what they've seen going on to John, and he sends to Jesus for confirmation. Jesus, without an answer initially to John's disciples, he, it doesn't say they came and asked this of Jesus, and Jesus said, watch this, or go tell John this. It just says Jesus goes on a healing spree. They ask in verse 20, John wants to know, are you the one? Jesus doesn't say a word. It just says in that same hour. So right there, during that setting, in that scenario, that scene, what does he do? He heals disease. He heals plagues. He casts out demons. He heals blindness, etc. Then he speaks to John's guys. Go tell John about this. Presumably for confirmation. He asks, am I the one? You've seen what I've done, so go tell him. So this, we, That's a note for you as you read Scripture. If he can do something that would be confirmation of what John would be expecting, how would John know what to expect? Old Testament texts. Either through direct revelation of God, which we understand John the Baptist's mother at least received some through an angel. Or through the revelation given in God's word. Well, if we understand this to be confirmation of revelation given in God's word, we should be able to look back in our Bible because we have those same old covenant texts and figure out what Jesus is talking about there. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 are exactly what Jesus is talking about there. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Isaiah 61.1, which is already a verse Jesus has quoted as in he is fulfilling this verse. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach good things unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro- proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. So Jesus is performing the actual fulfillment of these prophecies in front of John's disciples and this crowd and sending back them to John to say, we saw him do what it was said Messiah would do. <laughs> if at this point you can't take the Bible's word on that Jesus is God then deity is going to be a big hurdle for you. And so salvation is going to be an impossibility for you. There's salvation in no other. He also sends a word of encouragement, though. And that's, that's my point throughout this text, is the goodness of Jesus. Not only does he correct doctrine, not only does he teach doctrine, but all along the way, he's just showing his goodness, his love, his compassion, in his encouragement. Notice what he says to verse, in verse 23 to John. He says in verse 22, Go your way and tell John what you've seen, and that I said this, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. This is his way of saying to John, Don't let what you see and hear, or what you haven't yet seen and heard, become an offense to you. Jesus is saying to John, I am he, you're just going to have to wait and see. Now, twice we've seen a reversal up against Old Covenant tradition. He wasn't to go to a Gentile house, so he just heals remotely instead. He wasn't to touch the dead, so he makes the dead alive so that he can touch them. Now we don't get that. We get a direct fulfillment of Old Covenant doctrine. Why did Jesus perform these miracles? Number one, it was to encourage John. In love, in caring, compassion, he wanted to encourage John. But number two, it was to love these people who were in need. We must not miss that in the text. Yes, this was an answer to John's question. But if you'd been blind all your life, aren't you glad Jesus answered John's question using you as illustration? Praise the Lord. What a wonderful thing. If you had a loved one possessed with a demon, and John's disciples came and said, Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus said, hang on a second, and demon come out of them. And your loved ones now healed from demon possession. Aren't you glad? 
What a blessing it is to notice the goodness of Jesus in this text and to realize that as modern-day Bible-thumping Christians, we don't have to give up doctrine for the sake of good works. We can have both. You can be nice and right. You can show love through doctrine. Jesus does that very thing here. Then in verse 24, we see the goodness of Jesus to the people who are assembled. When the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went you out for to see? A prophet? Yes, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Raise your hand this morning if you're least in the kingdom of God. I got mine up. What did Jesus just say about you? He said, you're greater than John the Baptist. That's unique, isn't it? If you came in here this morning feeling down and out like you're nothing. I mean, up to this point you could say, see, God didn't come tell my mama I was going to be born. But Jesus just said about you, you're greater than John the Baptist. I'll give you some more there in just a minute. Verse 29, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto shall I liken the men of this generation, and to, to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace calling one to another and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners. But wisdom is justified of all of her children. If you underline in your Bible, verse 35 is a great verse to underline. It's a New Testament proverb. Wisdom is justified... Of all of her children. And I'll get you there in just a second. We see the goodness of Jesus to these people assembled. He teaches them about John. In verse 24, he asks them this question. What what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Saying, John the Baptist is not a reed shaken in the wind. He is not fickle. He is not spineless. And I would encourage any and all of us, especially those who would stand before a group of God's people gathered and open the word and preach the word to give up being fickle and spineless and to stand firm on what the Bible says and cut it straight and make it right before God's people. There are too many spineless people calling themselves preachers in the world today who won't profess true doctrine. In the name of, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to run off the crowd. Well, what have you got if you've got a crowd of people who won't hear true doctrine? It's not a church. Cut it straight. Give it to them firmly. And I want, if I'm going to go to the fair and pay my $5 to ride the ride, I want to get scared to death. Amen? If I'm going to go to some restaurant and buy a $14 milkshake, I want there to be the chance that I might vomit after eating it. And I know you say, well, that's gross, but what do you want when you come over here on Sunday mornings? Now I'll lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or do you want repent you for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Preach to us. I was so sickened in Bible college. And y'all have heard me say this before, and I'll, you know, you can, you can pick anybody and pick on them, right? You could pick me and pick on me this morning. But there was a, a clip from a very famous preacher in our world, and he was being interviewed on Larry King. And Larry King was tossing this dude softballs. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about there in regards to interviews, tossing someone a softball sit means you're making it easy for them to hit home runs. Just easy, simple questions. And this guy, for the sake of political correctness, would not say yes. All he had to do was say yes. Now, Mr. Preacher, you believe, this is the interviewer, you believe in, in your, your belief system that Jesus Christ is the way to God. All of you. Everybody who's never been to seminary, answer that question real quick. 
Okay, just making sure. All of you have been to seminary probably give a more complicated answer, but we don't need a more complicated answer there. You know what this guy was saying? Well, I don't know. You don't know. You call yourself a preacher. The Bible says that we may know. He's given us his word on it. Amen. And there, I mean, it's, it's sickening. I can, t- I can send you the clip. And you go in and watch it. And multiple times he keeps saying to him, what about this? What about that? And they're all just very simple questions. Jesus says the way, the truth, and the life. Well, I don't know. I think God's people are, are, are to be those who are saying, we want you to tell us what you know. And if you don't, just sit down and hush. Jesus says this about John. He's not a spineless, fickle preacher. He was not a prophet who was a reed shaken in the wind. He goes on to say about him in verse 25, You don't like the way he dressed, but I want you to be clear, he didn't dress like earthly royalty, and he didn't dress like those who were entertained by earthly royalty. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Now, men think it's perfectly fine if we want to wear nice soft clothes. I don't think this is Jesus saying that that's wrong. But he is making a point here. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately. I guess any of you who don't like the suits, this could be your proof text for that. You can say, see, you're in those soft, delicate, you're, you're dressed up like you're going to see the king. And Jesus said, John, the Baptist didn't have to be that way, so I, I, why do I? I get on the guys who preach here because I'm always about you know, dress right. Dress, put, you're supposed to put on your uniform to preach the word. Amen, Miss Wiggins? Amen. I knew I had one fan in there with me. Miss <laughs> Wiggins and I have gone to conferences together. and we, We're not judgmental, but we sat, we've sat back and watched other people, and we've decided what we like and what we don't like. <laughs> Jesus said, this is not this guy. Verse 26 and 27, he says he's a prophet. In fact, he's more than a prophet as the forerunner of Christ. I mean, that kind of make him the, the, like the prophet, right? He was the one that was prophesied about who finally came and gave this prophecy, and there came Jesus. Verse 28, be sure you see him within the context. Among those that are born among women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. He that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Yes, John has been given a great task and calling. He's been used greatly of God in his life. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater. I think MacDonald puts this into one sentence very well. He says, To enjoy the blessings of the kingdom is greater than to be the forerunner of the king. Well, that's that's good. Jesus reveals to these people then the division that's beginning to be revealed among them. Good book that we promoted for you guys very much this spring and summer. It's called Fault Lines by Dr. Vody Bauckham. And I believe I understand him to be writing a second one of those. His point being that before there's ever an earthquake on earth, there's, there are fault lines below the surface of the earth that, are, that have been there all along. You just don't see that being revealed until you see that earthquake. I've always lived in Georgia and Tennessee, so I don't know anything about any of that. Those of you from California could probably clue me in. But this is what Jesus is starting to say here. It's not an original concept with modern earthquakes or even modern scholars. Jesus is begin, beginning to say here, there's some fault lines in your Jewish religion and beginning to see a division among yourselves. Verse 29, and all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism in John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. There's a clear distinction. Those who would be baptized in the preparation baptism John was offering and those who would not be baptized in the preparation. And uniquely, the division is humble sinners... Repenting in preparation of their Messiah versus prideful religious sinners rejecting what is even happening because it messes up their plans. Jesus then describes the people of his generation in illustrative form, verses 31 through 34. He says, like spoiled children, they cannot be pleased. He speaks of John, and basically he says of John, He's just way too in their face with his approach. They didn't like that he was not spineless or fickle. And then they say of Jesus, though, well, he's too easygoing and indulgent. 
John came and he wouldn't dare eat or drink or worry about how he was dressed. And then then you have Jesus, on the other hand, who made it a point to fellowship and to gather with people and to dine with them and be around them and be a part of their lives. And you can't be happy with either one. John is too in their face. Jesus is too easygoing. And, and, And we find similar generalizations in religious circles in our time. One is either too liberal or too legalistic. And most can never be pleased other than in their perfect church they found for themselves here. And that's only until any one little thing in their perfect church happens to change, even if it's for the better. And then they decide, well, I've got to go find another perfect church. And if you're a church hopper, I don't think any of you are, but if you are, you, you know the routine. When you finally settle in, this is where I'm going to settle, you tell the preacher things that were wrong about that other church, so why you're okay to leave and go there, and you tell them why everything at this new place is perfect and why you plan to be there forever. And those of you who have had that conversation with me, I don't say this to you judgmentally, but you'll remember something I always said to you. And to make it quick, it was basically on the lines of, until that changes. Anything that's never changed in your life? Oh, some of you stubborn people had a great comeback there. That was a good softball through you. My opinion. <laughs> Anything never changed in your life? Yeah, my mind. I mean, everything's changing all the time, it seems like. I I put this out for you this week. I want to quote it to you here. J.C. Ryle, he had a great conclusion on this matter. He says, we must give up the idea of trying to please everyone. The thing is impossible, and the attempt is a mere waste of time. We must be content to walk in Christ's steps and let the world say what what it likes. Do what we will. We shall never satisfy or silence its ill-natured remarks. It first found fault with John the Baptist and then with his blessed master. And it will go on finding fault with the master's disciples so long as one of them is left upon the earth. Which brings Jesus to this proverb, wisdom is justified by her children, in verse number 35. Well, who would be wisdom there? It would be Jesus for sure. Well, who are his children? Well, it would be those who embrace him by faith. So Jesus settles this division with his true followers who live as he has then and now. Caring, loving, helping, showing this same goodness in their own lives. Wisdom will be justified by her children. Or you'll know a tree by the fruit that it bears. We end today with the the woman of verse 36 through 50. And see the goodness of Jesus toward her. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. Now, let's be clear. They were all sinners. So for Luke to point out this is a clue to us that this is a person who had a public reputation of a sinful behavior. But he doesn't say what it is. Everybody okay with that? In fact, I don't know that you'll find in the Bible what it is. The Catholic Church will tell you what it is. But then they'd be adding to scripture. It's never recorded of this lady what it is. But some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? To those of you who have ears to hear, let you hear. The rest of you, let's just go on to the text here. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, And anointed them with the ointment. Now be clear that we know this is Jesus. And that we love Jesus. And we'd probably just blobber all over ourselves even more if Jesus was here this morning. So we read this and we're like, oh, this is great. She she can't quit crying so much that she's got enough tears to wash his feet with him. That's pretty good. She didn't get the bucket out. She just cried all over him there. (laughs) She... She anointed his head with oil, but she anointed the, the crusty toes with the snot from her nose there, I believe. I mean, she's just really blobbering over Jesus here and kissing his feet, and she anoints him with this ointment. Now, we see this as just this marvelous thing, but you need to see it as the people saw it there. This is a Pharisee's house. This is totally inappropriate for anybody to do this. But especially for that woman with a sinful reputation. We know about her, they would have been thinking. 
And what in the world is she doing? And why is this man allowing this to happen? All right, so you've got to get there in your head to get the rest of the story. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, so this is the guy whose house it is, he spake within himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So he's having these thoughts. I can't believe this is happening in my house. And obviously this guy is not a prophet. It's like if somebody tells you they're psychic, right? You you whack them on the face. They should have known that was coming. So you just proved they weren't. This is what this guy is saying here about Jesus here. So Jesus, without hearing what the man said audibly, says back to him. Now, you can misunderstand this as Jesus talking to Simon Peter here at the Pharisee's house. But I think the Pharisee's name was just Simon. Because it says, Jesus answering said unto him. Like in response to his thought patterns there. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee, and he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, and the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? You know the answer. Which one? 500. Yeah. Uh, For sure, he had the greater debt. Simon answered, verse 43, and said, I suppose that he, to whom he forgave the most, and he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said, Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Now, there's the second thing you want to know in the culture of verse 44. It was a huge insult to invite someone to your house and not give them water to wash their feet. Right? I mean, just, we have manners in our day. I don't know them and I'm not good at them. Let me say that a different way. I ain't no good at them. But, but there are some, you know, like, okay, I know one. Like if I was up on stage sitting and a lady was to come up, what should I do? Stand up. See, that's good manners. If I sit, either I don't know my manners very well or I don't think she's a lady. That would be customary, especially in the colonial times. That would be what you would be saying in that regard. So for him not to give Jesus water for his feet either means he didn't know what to do, which I think he knew what to do, or he didn't recognize Jesus was worth it. That's important. Verse 45, Jesus said, Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Now there, there is the real accusation against Jesus. They, they were fine with him doing his little parlor tricks of healing. Even if that's what they thought they were. We think they're miracles and they're real. But when he begins to say your sins are forgiven, he hasn't been given the authority of organized religion to say such things. So Jesus goes to dinner at a Pharisee's house. A sinful woman with a reputation of that I'm going to say worships him. That's what she's doing there, essentially. And this Pharisee finds this as a chance to accuse Jesus. Now, we need to take note here as Christians. No, no two people were right in this story. One was right, one was wrong. Either this Pharisee was right and Jesus was wrong, or as we know to be the case, this Pharisee was wrong. So what was he doing? He was deflecting inner guilt by accusing Jesus. What this woman was doing was convicting him. Her actions. What should he have done when Jesus came to the house? Washed his feet. Or gave him some water, given him some water to wash his feet. Or had a servant to wash his feet. And she begins to wash his feet. And he has to say something in that regard. Because he's guilty because he didn't do the right thing. It began to show up in his actions. What he says in verse number 39. When he said in, in his own brain there. If he were a prophet. That's original sin. Wearsby says here, people who want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in the preacher to criticize. This is one way they justify themselves. We saw that in the ministry of John the Baptist. Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why should I do what this dude says? He says, you're a generation of vipers. And they said, we're not having any part in this. They begin to accuse John's looks. They begin to accuse John's ways to deflect 
revealing the truth was they weren't ready for the coming of the Messiah. They didn't want to address the problem in themselves, so they began to attack this preacher. Jesus illustrates this for us here at the end of Luke chapter number 7. But it's very prevalent in the day and age in which we live. Wearsby goes on to say, God's wisdom is not frustrated by the arguments of the wise and prudent. It is demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believed. This is how true wisdom is justified. Well, Jesus uses this as a chance to teach. He teaches Simon this Pharisee. He was hard-hearted. He lacked love because he felt self-righteous. And then we have this sinful woman who just could not contain herself. Well, we, we see what sinless, selfless worship should look like right here in this text. We call ourselves gathering as the church to worship our God. But is it selfless worship or is it selfish worship? Is it sinful worship or is it prideful worship? This lady does all of this with complete selflessness, with complete humility. She anoints him with a precious, expensive oil. Most scholars would calculate the value of this to be like two years' wages. And she pours this out on Jesus' head. Now you can give to God in a lot of different ways, but I can illustrate it best with our offerings. What kind of offering did you give this morning? Oh, I'm, I'm so pharisaical here. I've been taught 10%. I give my 10%. I feel good about it. Our treasurer sends out these reports at the end of the year. Thank you, treasurer. And it sees it. It never fails. Every year. What do I do when I get that report, dear? You don't want to say it in public? I usually come to her grinning and say, Can you believe we gave that much to the church this year? Now, I try to not be prideful there. I generally am saying it like, Wow, God's really blessed us to be able to give this amount if all we gave was 10%. Does any of that line up with any teaching about giving in the New Testament? <laughs> Not at all. So I'm preaching myself under the pulpit here. Because what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be sacrificially given in such a generous way that it, but it, that it kind of makes me question my sanity here. We're supposed to be hilarious about it. God came to Abraham and said, you're 90-something you're years old, you're going to have a baby. And he belly laughed on the floor. He like rolled around. <laughs> God did something miraculously hilarious in his life. Now, I want you to think about your giving. And sure, apply that to your giving. But, but my point is not your giving. My point is your, your, your thoughts of living before Almighty God. This lady came in and poured out two years of wages in one moment before Jesus. Have you ever worshipped like that? I don't mean like have you ever written a check for two years of your wages. What I mean is have you ever given that much of yourself at one time to God? There wasn't much left in her life at this point. In fact, what was she left to do after that? Just follow Jesus around. Is that the life you want? What I want to do tomorrow, follow Jesus. What I want to do Tuesday, follow Jesus. Where do I want to go? Where he goes. What I want to do, whatever he tells me to do. Then we see she cried, she kissed, she dried him with her hair. Now the hair is a, a very important thing here. It was disgraceful for a Jewish woman to let her hair down in public. But she did it to dry these tears that were on Jesus' Feet. What I hear as I read this in the modern church is we are too serious about keeping our hair up. I don't know the old saying, need to let your hair down. I think the church needs to let its hair down. Our worshipful hair, we need to let it down. We call ourselves being reverent. We call ourselves being decent and in order. And I'm all for all of those things. In fact, if you get out of order, myself and the other elders and the deacons in this church are going to deal with you according to what the Scripture says. But I'm going to be honest with you. We're failing in our jobs as your deacons and elders because most of you are out of order every time we meet because you are not actually being reverent toward God because you're not worshiping one single bit. There's no greater irreverence than not worshiping at all. It would be better for you to do something poorly in trying than to do nothing at all because you're trying to be decent and in order and reverent. 
Can you imagine if the queen walked in here this morning? What would we all do? And we're a bunch of Americans. But we know the right thing to do if she walked by would be to do this right here. Did I do it right? I don't know if I did it right. And somebody said stand up. Yes, absolutely. You know, Jesus said about John the Baptist, what went you out for to see? What did you expect? If I could collectively grab us sometimes and shake us during worship, that's what I would say. What did you come here to do? Why are you gathered here this morning? And I get we all have our own personalities, we all have our own ways. But there's a difference in a worshipful face and a blank face. It's the truth. This lady gave her all. She let her hair down. She worshipped. And, and for those of you here who are still sitting here saying, well, I don't know. Some things some people do in worship, I just don't know if we should do it again. Don't forget we're in a chapter where Jesus has taken all of these I knows and he's twisting them back around to what he knows that they can't quite grasp. And he does that again here as he reverses religious tradition. Verse 44, he turned to the woman and said, Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, had not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing out what wasn't done and what should have been done and how it was done, even though those who control what was and wasn't done were not willing to admit it was done properly. And boy, oh boy, in that regard, what did Jesus say? Verse 47, he says to Simon, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same love is little. And he said unto her, your sins are forgiven. To the, to the centurion's servant, Jesus said, I'll just heal remotely because you, you're thinking to yourself, I, it's not worth it for me to come there. To the one he touched who was dead, he wasn't supposed to touch a dead body, so he makes him alive to make it all right. What does he do here? This woman with a sinful reputation that he shouldn't be in this kind of a worshipful relationship with, he just forgives her sins. He made it all right. Christian, are your sins forgiven this morning? Is that your faith? I mean, that's mine. That's why I preach the gospel. That's why I hold to the Bible's teachings because it is what has cleansed me and made me holy. So what is Jesus expressing to us then? It's okay for us to worship Him. But due to her reputation, religion said Jesus is in the wrong to allow this woman to worship Him. I'm so glad He forgives her sins here. He had done a lot of miracles. This chapter would have been full even without this, but, but this is just still a part of it. It's so indicative for us to the goodness of Jesus. It's just what He does for our, us in our lives. We are spiritually dead. We are sin sick. We are of poor reputation. Especially before religion. We are faith lacking. But He doesn't cast us away. He didn't put us away in condemnation. He heals all of our diseases. He gives us faith. He makes us alive spiritually. And He forgives our sins. Praise the Lord. But that's all problematic for the religious authorities here. Because they either have to now embrace Him as Emmanuel, the promised one, Messiah, or they have to rebuke Him. And that's what they do. Only God can forgive sin. And only God is to be worshipped like this. This is the goodness of Jesus. He's more concerned for this one-time instance with this woman than anything else happening in the room at this time. I ask us what has happened to the goodness of Jesus in the modern church. He's not stopped dealing with us as He did with people then. He loves us. He cares for us. He shows us compassion. He forgives and He brings us new life. Still we, who are to be His body in this life, His hands, His feet, we are often more like the prideful, self-reliant, religious people in this story than the humble, worshipful, 
faith-dependent people that we find. So let us learn and begin to live reciprocating the goodness of Jesus that he has bestowed upon us. Let's stand. Father, you have spoken to us much from your word this morning. We are your church. We are people who pride ourselves on knowing what is right in the word and what is wrong. And living out that which is right. So as we consider what you've said to us through your word this morning, help us to address our own issues. To further be doers of the word and not hearers only. What are we like when someone low on the totem pole needs help? Are we willing to help? What are we like when we're called upon as religious folk to do something about it? Do we begin spouting our religious haughtiness or do we in humility bring them before you and say, help, Lord? Do we even believe that you can heal the sick? Do we even believe that you can raise the dead? When we see someone grieving the loss of their loved one, do we have the same compassion that you did? Do we consider ourselves in light of John the Baptist as you spoke of us? Or do we see ourselves as just mere parts of all of this? John the Baptist played a great role, but you said, The least of us in your kingdom have it greater than he does. But how are we in our worship? Are we connected? Are we plugged in? Are we actively worshiping you? Or do we just sit back and look around and have thoughts and comments about others? Are we giving you our all? You sure did give your all on the cross. Lord, bless this time as we consider these things. Lord, help us to be doctrinally sound as a church, but to be abundantly loving and generous and compassionate, full of mercy and grace as we go and live out your commands for the church. Bless this time as we respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's let's bow and pray and do business with the Lord. Miss Wiggins will play and give us some time to do this.